Welcome to Supreme Myths. I am so happy today to have as my guest Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia is a graduate of Yale Law School with a BA in English, and that shows. Um, she went to Stanford Law School, uh, clerked for the Ninth Circuit. Dahlia has been writing, writing about the Supreme Court for Slate since 1999, but of course her influence is much not that Slate isn't broad, but much broader than that. She's a regular guest on The Rachel Maddow Show. She's been on The Jon Stewart Show. Her articles and essays have appeared everywhere, and she's the co-host of Slate's podcast, Amicus. Dolly, it's great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me, Eric. Uh, I'm really excited about this. So let's start with this. Y you've been covering the court now for roughly 23 years or so, give or take. I know. <laughs> I know I've been teaching 31, so I feel much older than, than you do, um, and I am. Um, what are some of your highs and lows covering the court? Let's start with the highs, because that'd be better. And then from the lows, we'll segue to other things. Um, I mean, I think the high is just that line from Hamilton, right? Being in the room where it happens mm -hmm. and to be in that building, uh, walking up the steps of that building in that press room, in that chamber, there's just nothing like it. And, uh, you know, I've long said that the court by design was built to look like an oracular temple. Right. Um, and it works. You really feel like you are in some kind of consecrated holy space, even if it's the Church of the Constitution. And I, you know, so I think about being in the room when Bush v. Gore was argued, being in the room when Obergefell came down, being in the room when uh, the first Affordable Care Act case came down. I mean, I think there's just something about bearing witness to constitutional history uh, that is unparalleled. And I, you know, I think even, and I know we're going to talk about you know the, the the sort of precipitous decline of respect for the court right now. But even in the midst of all that, it is just on the most visceral level, like deeply powerful uh, to be in the room witnessing that go down. Uh, and I don't even care if that sounds corny. <laughs> and then I guess the lows are, you know, being in the room when, you know, Shelby, Shelby right. comes down, right. being in the room right. when... Um, you know, Justice Stevens is reading his dissent in Citizens United, and he's so overwhelmed, like his voice right. uh, quivers. It's, you know, I think that even in my time covering the court, when there was never anything but a kind of 5-4 conservative liberal court, <laughs> um, watching what felt like the move of the court to kind of a far right position that was so outside the scope of what I think, you know, even the sort of O'Connor swing justice court right. that I started covering. Right. And then I just, I guess the, the ugliness of, you know, Merrick Garland, of Brett Kavanaugh, of Amy Coney Barrett. And, and again, I think it's visceral, you know, that, that um, you feel that it's not just something that you see. I'm going to ask you about Brett Kavanaugh in a second, but before I get to that question, um, so you know, I've been on this one of my many, many rants um, about cameras in the court, and because I want the American people in that room, Dahlia, I really do. I want them, especially on decision days. I mean, the oral arguments, I'd like them to see that. I actually think that's less important than hearing Justice Stevens's dissent, for example, in Citizens United. Or you once wrote a fantastic column for Slate. I think, I mean, all of them are, but I think the Arizona redistricting case that came after Obergefell, which was a Monday, and Obergefell was a Friday, and Scalia went nuts on that Monday and started ranting about the Friday Obergefell decision. And you wrote a piece about that. And I would never have known that Scalia did that without your piece. And I made that point at the time that that Scalia was still mad about Obergefell, even though, you know, or maybe it was Shelby County and Arizona. Maybe those are the two cases. But but in any event, do you think Americans should be in that room? 
I think it was a death penalty case, Eric, and okay. I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, but it's actually, factually, that's correct, that that what Scalia was saying was nowhere. It wasn't in his <laughs> notes. You know, they release right. these sort of truncated summaries that they read from if they're going to read a, a dissent or a concurrence from the bench. It wasn't in there. It wasn't in his opinion. He was just right. totally off the <laughs> reservation, and he was kind of punching away at poor Steve Breyer, who was sort of sitting there being like, what movie am I in? Like, why am I being shouted at about a different case? And I think the reason I wrote the piece is exactly what you're saying. There were about three reporters in the room, right? which is its own problem. It's become completely inefficient. This is even pre-COVID for reporters to be in the room on decision days because you can't tweet. You can't broadcast. By the time everyone's read their opinions and their dissents, it's been an hour and a half. So the efficiencies just all push toward not being in the room, listening to it um, in the press room. And what I felt was that that was an actual moment of history that was happening and there were no witnesses. Uh, And of course, by the time you get the transcript, everything is scrubbed and sanitized. And so this thing actually happened. And you probably recall, because I think we talked about it at the time, over the summer, I had other reporters being like, that couldn't have happened. Like, how did that, you know, and I was like, (laughs) but I was there and I was taking notes and it's in my piece. And so I think in addition to the sort of factual problem of what happens and how you keep a record of history when the reporters can't, you know, can't show up because there's no time and uh, the record is somehow cleansed, I think that your deeper point is the correct one, which is, you know, this is the country's court. It works for the country. They are there at the sufferance of the country and the country is locked out. And it's a persistent problem. I think the court's done a really admirable thing by extending even post-COVID the telephonic arguments because I was one of those people who thought they were going to kind of go back into the, you know, dark, dark (laughs) uh, uh, hole of of, uh, releasing audio a week later. But I think you're right. And I think... All of the reasons for it are elitist to the point of eye-crossing absurdity, right? So the arguments are either that the justices, you know, don't want to be stopped at the safe way when they're squeezing the cabbages, like not a reason to keep America out. Or, you know, Justice Scalia's sort of more pernicious construction, which was, you know, we don't sell law reviews at the 7-Eleven on the corner and we don't release, you know, audio right. of hand-downs. Right. And, and, and those are just ridiculous arguments. And the saddest part of this is that, you know, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, several of the justices have been asked in their hearings what their position is on this. And particularly Justice Kagan said, I was the SG. And of course, America should watch and listen and learn because it's an amazing thing to see oral argument. It's an amazing thing to see how not completely partisan and political this is. And if all you see is the confirmation hearing and not this, you're getting a totally distorted picture. And of course, the minute they all come on the bench, they're like, oh, well, you know, (laughs) I was just kidding. And so it's, I think it's, it's not just that it's undemocratic and elitist and wrong, but I think that America's missing out on the most important part of the story, which is much of the time they are actually trying to do something that isn't pure, naked, partisan politics. Right. Well, I will we'll return to that point maybe at the end. Um, when, so you, you were there for Bush versus Gore. You were there for Shelby County. We can, Citizens United, we can go on and on and on. But the most, I think, the most impassioned column I've read of yours, and they're all full of passion, uh, was after the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, where I think you said, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you were pretty much done in the going to the court and reporting on what's happening in the court that day business. You're still going to write about the court, but you're not going to be the Adam Liptak, Robert Barnes, you're, you know, the, being the j- journalist who's in the room. So I guess I have two questions. What was it about the Kavanaugh hearings that was a tipping point, I think, for you? And, it, and are you going to go back into the room? Um, so that was a slightly problematic time because it was a, an entire year post the Kavanaugh hearings. And I was in the room, by the way, for the Kavanaugh hearings, too. I okay. guess we should yeah. be clear about that. It was not 
an immense uh, press presence in the room. It was a tiny hearing room. I was there when uh, Dr. Blasey testified and then when Judge Kavanaugh testified. And that very much affected how uh, I felt in that, again, visceral sense. Um, And then a year went by and I kept saying I had a cold and couldn't go to court. And at some point my editors (laughs) uh, called me out and said, what's going on? And we talked about it a lot. And I just said I'm having a very hard time doing this sort of neck-snapping normalization that we have to do in the press corps. And, you know, I think this goes to a lot of the stuff that you write too, Eric, which is – It is very strange to me that we cover confirmation hearings as political events with all of the ugly, tawdry, personal, you know, big money campaigns. And then we take the political reporters out of the room and we send in the court reporters and they cover the court as though it is this pristine, oracular institution. And I want to just bracket that by saying I was really struck. I'd be curious if you were. By how many of the curtain raisers this term, really, I think, even from the most mainstream uh, Supreme Court press reporters, actually departed from that model and were quite political, you know, whether it was talking about Justice Alito's speech or talking about the polling. So I don't want to suggest that that's a hard and fast line, but it is certainly the case that we cover the politics of the court through one lens, and then we cover the work of the court as a sort of (laughs) constitutional oracular entity through this other lens. And the best for me example of that is that there are no or very few Supreme Court reporters in the room during confirmation hearings, right? They have us on their phones in case we have to explain what Griswold versus Connecticut is, but we're not covering it because not the business of, you know, Supreme Court reporters to cover everything that comes before. And then that allows this sort of like, and now the snow has fallen and the judge puts on the robe and everything that has come before is immaterial because now they are a neutral umpire. They are a brain in a vat. And I think (laughs) that that's a really hard transition to make if you believe, as I really did, that the process itself for the Kavanaugh vetting and the hearings uh, was deeply flawed, that right. you know, hundreds and thousands of pages of material were not turned over, that the investigation was not even close to – I mean, we now know how ridiculously right. uh, thin the investigation right. was. And so then it's – the question is, can – you do that thing, which is, I will now become an umpire myself. I will now say, <laughs> you know, bygones and whatever happened in there is immaterial because now uh, Justice Kavanaugh is an umpire and a brain in a vat and whatever, you know, bygones. Uh, and I and I just found that turn was just beyond me. And I thought, having witnessed what happened to Dr. Blasey, that we did not in the press, I think, support her. Mm -hmm. Um, And that to just say, you know, oh, well, good people on both sides, things happen, who's to say, uh, was just beyond what I could do. Just one coda to that story, which is, you know, and I still, I got a lot of angry mail. I got a lot of supportive mail. You know, I still have not quite thought through what it meant, but I will say, I got a lot of mail from con law professors after I posted that piece saying, thank you for saying this. This is why I can't keep teach constitutional law anymore um, yes. because the court yes. is in a court and thank you for saying it. And that horrified me. I mean, the idea that like con law professors were saying, I too am taking a knee and I will not participate. I was like, no, no, <laughs> like, you don't get to opt out. So that was a really interesting um, unintended consequence or maybe not consequence, but corollary that I really struggled with. Did I hear you say they said the court isn't a court? Is that what I heard you say? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> a lot of people saying, you know, versions of what you've said for a long time, which is I've hit my line of how much I can stand in front of a bunch of doe-eyed 1Ls and say that this court is perfect. Uh, And that was never what I wanted. (laughs) Jeff Powell told me that in 1992. Now, he changed his mind eventually. But he, when I first met Jeff, and he's a great guy and a great professor, 
I asked him what he was teaching, and he said this, that, but not con law. I said, why not con law? He said, I can't do it anymore. Now, he's, I think he's gone back to it. Chris Sprigman at NYU recently taught a con law course and then said, I'm not doing this anymore because it's all made up. I want to support your point about the distinction between reporters covering the confirmation process and reporters covering the court. There was a moment in Kavanaugh's hearing that got largely ignored. And had, had there been 20 Supreme Court reporters in the room, it would not have been ignored because there were two or three, I think it was, where he said he was asked about Roe and precedent and he was doing all the you know, stuff they do when you ask those questions. But unlike other nominees, he said, I favor Justice White's concurring opinion in Griswold. And he said that. And um, the person on the street, even the average, and certainly the average political reporter, would have no idea what that means. But what that meant was Justice White concurred in Griswold on non-privacy grounds and then on kind of other grounds and then dissented in Roe. And saying that you agree with Griswold's with White and Griswold is effectively saying you don't agree with Roe. And that wasn't picked up. And in fact, when I tweeted that out, um, I was surprised how many people jumped on to that. And, and, and even sophisticated people were like, oh, we didn't catch that. We missed that. That would not have been missed had people who understood this, a lot of people, there's so much to write about. But had that not, I think that was a very key moment. And we're still not really talking about that moment. But he said that. He said, I agree with White and Griswold which is a long way from saying he agrees with, Gris- with Griswold. Yeah, and I think Garrett Epps was one of the very hand- tiny handful of people who I remember who caught and wrote about Amy Coney Barrett in her hearings, um, yeah. saying that Griswold maybe wasn't president. <laughs> you know, I mean, right. I think <laughs> right. that it matters when uh, judges and confirmation hearings are retreating from, even if it's just a, a fiction that they do for politeness, that Brown isn't precedent anymore, which we started to see in the last couple of years, that right. Griswold isn't precedent. And to I think you're exactly right. Those are not interesting stories, much more interesting to tell the story, you know, Amy Coney Barrett wants to overturn the Affordable Care Act. But I think part of, right. and this is, it's a really good point. If you don't have Supreme Court reporters in the room as doctrine is changing in real right. time, uh, right. who's going to clock that? And I, I think that's right. And I think there is just this very strange agreement. The story I always tell, which is so trivial but so funny, is um, you remember a couple of years ago when Ginny Thomas very early in the morning called Anita Hill and left a message saying, yes. Yes. it was so interesting because, you know, all of the networks were calling Supreme Court reporters to go on the shows and talk about it. And none of the Supreme Court reporters wanted to talk about it because they're like, whatever this is, this is not my beat. And right. it's sort of it goes to that. You know, you've been you've been bathed in the waters of, you know, the SCOTUS um, fountain of purity and whatever the political story. I mean, I, I know we're going to talk about Judge Pryor in a minute, but this is part of the same problem. Like, there's no press corps that wants to write that story because it's not seen as seemly right. for, for court reporters to write it. And political reporters are like, not really getting why the intern matters, <laughs> fully not right. understanding what a clerkship is. So we, I just think yeah. what falls into the sort of interstices here is really problematic. I agree with that. I'm going to ask you about prior in a second. But um, so I was really upset with Justice Kagan once. And I'm curious what you, th- well, twice. And I'm curious what you think. This happened to me today. I was debating a Federalist Society person on originalism today. And of course, they always start with Justice Kagan says we're all originalists. She didn't say that. She didn't come close to saying that. I've explained that a million times. She used kind of a Balkinian living constitution approach to, um, but she should have known better because that soundbite has been very, very, very powerful. And then let me just ask you one more thing to respond to. She wrote an article in 1995 in the Chicago Law Review, as you know, really taking apart the confirmation process, calling it a charade, a vapid charade. And it was really well thought out, a beautiful article. And she was right on every single thing she said. And as the dean of Harvard Law School, I later wrote a piece saying she was the perfect person to say, thank you for having me here. Yes. And she was asked this. Second question she was asked was, you once called this process a charade. Do you still feel that way? She completely walked it back. 
But as dean of Harvard, it's my position, she could have said, I want this job badly, thank you for having me. Let me tell you how I think this process could be improved. But she didn't do that. Do you think I'm being too judgmental? To I, I really wanted her to do that. I, I really wanted Sonia Sotomayor at her confirmation hearings yes. when she was pressed on really a wise Latina woman uh, and a, yes. an a w wise white man wouldn't come to the same conclusions, which she had said at her Berkeley speech. Uh, yes. I wanted her to say, of course not. Of course, in yes. the fullness of experience, all the things she said in her speech, sometimes on cases that have to do with race and gender, they will come to different uh, conclusions. And that is a good thing. And that's why we need diversity of opinion opinions on the bench. And as you recall, yes. she was like, oh, hell no. I never, yes. If I said that, I misspoke. I don't believe. I mean, and I think asking the justices to tank their own confirmation hearings in order to score some political point, I would rather have Kagan on the court. I would rather have Sotomayor on the court. And I do think it goes to this larger asymmetry of, you know, how constrained and careful liberals have to be in their confirmation hearings and yes. how much less so, you know, yes. here's Brett Kavanaugh sitting at his hearing saying like, man, you know, these Clinton enemies of, you know, they're going <laughs> to, they're going to reap the whirlwind. Like that's not disqualifying. Uh, but it might've right. been disqualifying if Sotomayor had said, yes, actually sometimes, you know, uh, Latino women will come to different conclusions. That would be career ending. So I think the larger point is that given the asymmetry of the ferocity of this debate, I'm not going to ask anyone to go through the wood chipper in order to make a point. Right. Well, I agree with you about Sotomayor. I, I'm, we can reasonably disagree. I, I think Kagan had the credentials, had different set of credentials than a lot of the nominees. And I think she, and she's got a great sense of humor, as we all know. And she's an amazing writer and speaker. She could have found a way to say, okay, maybe I was a little bit being academic in that Law Review article, and maybe I was overstating the case, you know, a little bit. But here are some things that would not be bad if you guys would consider, you people would consider, but, but we don't have to fight about that. But I just, I, 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 that was such a key moment where she could have said something important, and she didn't. But you're right. I want her on the court. I want Sotomayor on the court. So, so that's probably right. Um, let's talk about breaking news. We're taping this on a Tuesday, by the way, and I hope this changes by the time this airs on Thursday or Friday. I have no confidence it's going to change. There's an 11th Circuit judge named uh, Pryor, Judge Pryor. There's two of them. One is Jill Pryor. That's not this one. This is a different judge who has hired a law clerk who a very re re reputable reporter wrote in The New Yorker had said she had screenshots of this law clerk, of this lady woman saying, I hate black people. I'm done. And a few weeks after that, she was fired from her right-wing organization place of employment, only to be hired by Ginny Thomas, which we could probably spend the next 45 minutes talking about, but I don't want to. Um, she goes to George Mason now, Antonin Scalia School of Law, um, and Judge Pryor has hired her as his law clerk for next year. I hate black people, is what she said. And all she ever said about that was, I don't remember saying it, which is not a denial, um, and the reporter said they had screenshots. And she said, it's not who I am, but there was no apology, no, if people took offense, I'm deeply saddened by that and whatever. Um, and I've been trying to put the story out in every form I can. Uh, the Fulton County Daily Report is our local thing, and I did a big thing with them, but it came out nationally. How can we be living, Dahlia? Maybe you can help me, because I've been suffering through this. And I, I clerked for the 11th Circuit. So I, and the old 5th Circuit, and I'm old enough to have clerked for the 11th Circuit when it just was changing. The old Fifth Circuit had racial justice heroes on it, like Frank Johnson and Judge Tuttle. And now we have a, desp a despicable Fifth Circuit and an Eleventh Circuit judge who is hiring a woman who said, I hate black people. How can this happen in 2021? There's been no statement by anybody and they've declined comment. I, I mean, I guess the short answer is some version of the death of shame, right? Which is the cliche that I think is in some sense true, that things that would have been career ending even five or seven or eight years ago, you just ride it out and, you know, the new cycle moves on. Right. So I think there's a little bit of that. I think there is a little bit of the Ginny Thomas power wash where, you know, as soon as, I mean, this is a person who's too racist for like turning points and Charlie right. Kirk, right? They fire her, but it's still right. okay. Uh, so I right. think 
think that in some ways, uh, when Ginny Thomas, you know, befriended, took on, mentored, uh, she really, I think, cleansed this in a way that we should think about. And, you know, we know what we know about a whole bunch of Ginny Thomas interventions, including um, at least initially supporting some of the January 6th uh, 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 activities. But we know a lot about what she's done. And the idea that because she's married to a Supreme Court justice, we can't criticize she's untouchable, I think is a piece of this story. But maybe the lingering piece is, you know, we forget that the ethical rules for judges are not conflict of interest. It's the appearance, right? Right. They are supposed to be bound by what a reasonable person who brings a case to their doorstep would feel. And the idea that that's what's fallen away, that it's not who knows if this young woman is in fact racist, who cares in some sense uh, that she may have done something stupid as a, a youth and wasn't somehow prepared to apologize for it. But for a judge, the chief judge of the 11th Circuit, to have no concern for the appearance that any African-American party to come before him has to sit with that and that that appearance is not a factor, doesn't even warrant comment, I think is the real place that we've fallen off the rails. And you can talk about any number of judges through that lens, but I think we forget when we say, oh, it doesn't matter if judges don't recuse even though they've got investments, or it doesn't matter if a judge doesn't recuse even though their family participated in the litigation or, you know, their wife uh, was funding something. And we say, oh, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. But the standard isn't an objective test. The standard is if you are a litigant and the only thing you have is a judge's commitment to at least appear impartial that's what this blows up that's it that's that's well said a uh, um, couple things of course when you say the appearance of impropriety that ethical standard does not legally and technically apply to the Supreme Court which is another conversation because they are bound by no ethical standards um, and that's it's that's advisory it's advisory there they check it yeah. like like you check a menu hey right the standard say um, Judge Pryor in 1997 which I think is I'm terrible at math but I think 16 or 17 years before Shelby County, testified that he thought the Voting Rights Act was unneeded, unnecessary, and a huge burden on the states. So it's not just any judge. It's a judge with a somewhat of a history of, of, of peculiar notions about race and voting in this country. Um, it's also in Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, he's, he's in Alabama, but the 11th Circuit's home is Atlanta, Georgia. It all comes together as a perfect storm of, I can't believe this is happening. And I'm not even sure I don't know this for a fact, but I'm not sure the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which is the Atlanta Daily News, has even picked this story up. And I, they might have, but I'm not sure. And I find that crazy. I mean, um, uh, okay, so that, that's Judge Pryor. He has to say something at some point, doesn't he? I mean, that's, I, no, I don't he think so. I, and I think it's exactly because of what you started with, which is who's written about it. Ruth Marcus wrote a great piece in the Washington Post. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Above the Law has been covering this. Um, I'm looking as I'm talking to you. Uh, Kyle Whitmire uh, has written about this. Uh, you know, there's a handful of people who see it through the prism that you're describing. But I think this gets dismissed as a kind of business of law. You know, this is inside baseball. Who really cares? I think people don't understand that law clerks are not fetching coffee for their judges, that this is a rocket ship to a Supreme Court clerkship, right? The number of clerks that uh, Judge Pryor has placed with Clarence Thomas is unbelievable by any metric. I think it's 13. I think it's 13. I mean, I just think that all either doesn't get reported or isn't seen as interesting. And so there's nobody who's looking at this story and saying, A, who are the people who are litigants in front of this court? How do they feel? And B, is this a person that a judge puts his imprimatur on as a serious uh, uh, future jurist, uh, law professor, you know, insider? There's no questions asked because I think the the business of what clerkships are and how they have come to be uh, is something that is just not tackled by any anyone in the press. 
Right. I, I just want to repeat for people who aren't, um, I, I think it's some, at least some non-lawyers, non-law professors listen to this. Um, Ginny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas, hired this woman just a few weeks, I believe, after she said, I hate black people. And, and I, 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 I wish we had an hour and a half to discuss that and Clarence Thomas, but we don't. Um, but I find that to be, uh, offer us an insight into Ginny and Clarence Thomas that I think is very important. Speaking of Clarence Thomas, let's move on to Justice Scalia. Um, so I, this is another one of my naivetes. I'm often called naive by my colleagues. This will be another example of my naivete. There's a law school named after Antonin Scalia because George Mason got $40 million or something, and $10 million of it was from the Koch brothers, to name it the Scalia School of Law. And Harvard this year filled the Antonin Scalia Chair of Law with a friend of mine who I do not want to talk about. I mean, I, I don't, he's a good guy, and he has his reasons. However, just four quick examples for the non-lawyer lawyers listening. Scalia absolutely equated homosexual conduct with murder, and when called about it by a, Prince, a gay Princeton student, showed no remorse, in fact, showed hostility to that gay student. Those are facts. Those aren't, we can't debate those. He absolutely called the preclearance requirements of the Voting Rights Act a racial entitlement. Given the history of, racial of voter suppression in this country, that's unbelievable. He absolutely said he's not sure blacks belong at the University of Texas University because they can't compete there. And he absolutely voted that VMI should be all men, could be allowed to be all men in 1997, and it was, and it was an seven-to-one vote with Clarence Thomas recused. And then there's much more. He was a racist, sexist, homophobic man. And he is a hero <laughs> to the right and to Harvard, who's more than happy to put a chair in his name. This drives me to distraction. Am I overreacting? Am I wrong? Speak to me, my friend. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I'm going to make a slightly orthogonal observation, which okay. is, you know, reading the briefs in NYSERPA in the gun case, which is about to be argued at the case. It is astounding how all of the liberal groups are quoting Scalia back to the court. You know, the halcyon days of Heller, when Justice Scalia reasonably said that, you know, the right to bear arms isn't uh, without limit and reasonable regulations in the interest of public safety. I mean, it is amazing, given what you've just said, that now we look upon him as a sober, serious, centrist figure. Because to me, you know, there's two data points that I look at. One is the, the median justice on the U.S. Supreme Court today is Brett Kavanaugh. He's the center right. of that court. Um, Scalia, in my lifetime, was the far right of that court. Right. So I think that tells you where we are and what, you know, how the court has consistently, you know, replaced someone with someone either very far to their right or extremely far to their right with almost no exceptions. But then to sort of look at the, the, the nostalgia for Scalia's yeah. controlling opinion in Heller and saying, like, look, if we could only go back to the days when, uh, sure, he invented an individual right to bear arms for the first <laughs> time in 200 years that erases the first part of the Second Amendment. But, oh, my God, he was so reasonable <laughs> in terms of his view <laughs> of what could be regulated. And I just think maybe that more than anything – you know, rather than like bashing on Scalia, to me that he is now the longed for middle. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, I'm just, I, I just, this happened so fast. Yeah. And maybe the only uh, parenthetical here is that a lot of people carbon date the beginning of incivility, not just at the court but in the practice of law. And I know Dean Erwin Chemerinsky yeah. has been making this point for years, that Scalia's slight penchant for the Rush Limbaugh 
punch <laughs> down, the slight penchant for the, you know, witty quip rather than the fulsome analysis, that that really starts with Justice Scalia. And that, that at least in Dean Chemerinsky's telling, it really leeches into how lawyers practice, how lawyers write, that there really was this admiration, you know, barring what you're saying about, you know, the sort of hagiography on the, on the, among uh, uh, the conservative legal movements, but just, I think the general hagiography across the profession about what a good, smart, clever, sassy writer he was, um, without the corollary understanding that he did bring an awful lot of that kind of AM radio, um, snark and incivility to the bench. And I don't think we talk about that nearly as much as we should. And I think now it's the water we swim in. I mean, you know, both sides score points for writing that way. But it's, I, I think to not reckon seriously with what that did to the estimation, not just of the court, but the profession, I think has been a failure on our part. I, I agree with that. Um, Justice Breyer was asked not too long after Scalia passed, but long enough where we could be honest. Um, was he ever upset or did he you know, understand why Scalia felt the need to be sometimes personally insulting, especially to Justices Kennedy and O'Connor? Um, and, and Justice Breyer, who I will admit right away I'm kind of mad at these days, So, but leaving that aside, um, his answer was, this is when Breyer was hawking like three books ago, by the way. Um, he, um, he said, ah, it was just Nino being Nino. And we understood that. I think that's a direct quote. It was, he's a great, he said he's a great writer, which he was. He's a great writer. And it was just, he, it was hard for him to control himself. So it was Nino being Nino. And when I heard that, I thought, well, no. Nino shouldn't be Nino on the Supreme Court of the United States. And then it hit me. And, and this is my go-to. So we have this Princeton student who stands up um, and by all accounts is a little bit nervous and says to Justice Scalia, you equated homosexual conduct with murder. I don't know why you did that. That's very offensive to me, or something along those lines. A normal human being says, I was making a legal argument. I didn't mean offense. Of course, I don't think homosexual conduct and murder are the same things. And I'm sorry you were offended. It's just kind of what we do there. That's not what Scalia did at all. He said, it's a form of argument. I won't, I won't, get, I won't change what I said, and I won't back down from it. Really condescendingly. That's a human moment. That's not a Supreme Court justice moment. That's a moment when you're a good person or you're a bad person. That's a bad person doing that. Am I wrong in that? You know, I'm never comfortable with bad person. And um, okay. okay, he did a bad thing, a really bad thing. I think that it is certainly true that an immense amount of behavior, particularly, I think, for a certain kind of white male gets coded as that's just him being him and not coded as, no, that was actually fundamentally just deeply rude. And my analog to what you're describing is, you know, when he would be asked about Bush v. Gore, which was an utterly, you know, catastrophically reasoned, like put aside that they decided the election, but it was just an embarrassing piece of judicial uh, workmanship, which, by the way, will now rise again in the form of the independent state <laughs> legislature's doc- doctrine. But he, his response to everyone was just get over it. And it was that same dismissive, I'm not even going to take you on on the merits. I'm not even going to work right. through with you why the court uh, could take on this issue and then decide it in a piece of good for one ride only. Oh, we've suddenly discovered equal protection, you know, insanity. But instead to just tell people to get over it um, with all that, you know, came with that presidency. And so I, I think, you know, to make a moral judgment, I cannot. But I think what I would say is what I was trying to say about Judge Pryor, which is if you are an institution that by design is rooted, your power is rooted entirely in the public's belief that you are in good faith because that's all you have and you don't have an army and you don't have a treasury, 
Right. Don't act like that. Just don't. Right. Don't act. It's not hard. And right. so I think, and you know, in fairness, it's not just Breyer. I mean, Justice Ginsburg gave more cover to Justice Scalia yeah. than anyone else on the court and would say versions of that's just Nino and I didn't take it personally. And, you know, it's too bad when he said that like Sandra Day O'Connor was like not to be believed because she was so. But I think that in fairness, like there is a part of quote unquote collegiality and this norm of comity and respect and, uh, you know, we're, we're all, as Justice Breyer keeps saying, you know, we're all sitting together in the lunchroom and nobody's like smashing each other over the head, you know, with a shovel. <laughs> so we must be fine. And I just think it elides like being decent. And that's, I think, what your question is. And I and I think it's just not hard if the only thing that you are responsible for doing as a judge or a justice is to appear unbiased and to appear thoughtful. Just do that. But it seems now to be beyond everyone. Yeah. Um, so regular, if I had regular listeners to this know, I kind of have to mention Posner once a podcast. It's kind of my obligation. Um, so... Uh, he told me a fairly long time ago, and of course he knew Scalia well, um, didn't know Ruth Bader Ginsburg very well at all. But he, and towards the end, I, I, towards the end of his judicial career, I agree that Judge Posner said some things that I wish he hadn't said. But he did tell me once, several times, that he thought that Ginsburg and Scalia, while having a sincere friendship, also absolutely enjoyed the show of it. And we can look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg and say she's an American hero. She was. She did more for, as much for women's rights, I think, as you know, any lawyer could possibly ever do. Um, we may disagree on her record on the court, but but she's a human being with flaws. You know, one of her flaws was hiring one black law clerk in her entire career. The other flaw, I think, was making this big public show of her friendship with Scalia. Um, and I, um, I don't know. I wish that hadn't happened. I, I, I think that was a big deal. I think you're right to say that was a big deal. Uh, you don't have to respond to that. If you, you can if you want to. You don't have to. But no, I, I mean, my... I think my, my quick reflexive response is, is the one I always gave, you know, in the, in the weeks after she died when I was doing, you know, TV interview, 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 and everybody asked some version, Eric, of that was for show, right? That was utterly performative. And my answer was like, no, they adored each other. I mean, they really – I interviewed him about her. I interviewed her about him. I don't think – that that was performative. I think they both thought the other person was the smartest person they knew. I mean, they really did. And I just leave it at this, which is there is a way in which that's fantastic. We all need more of that. We need yes. to like find our way yes. to something that isn't, yes. you know, knock down, drag yes. out, burn it all down. But I think you're right that yes. when you include it in that give cover to shocking behavior – then query whether yeah. that really is, yeah. you know, mutual respect. And to be clear, Posner was absolutely not saying it wasn't sincere, and he wasn't even saying it was performative. He was just saying they enjoyed it. They enjoyed the reports that they were good friends. That He wasn't suggesting they were making that up or anything. I want to be clear about that. I have an off-the-wall question for you, and we only have like five or ten minutes left, and I do have about two minutes that i got to tell you something that I've never told you before. So we got to save time for that. Um, but... Um, I'm kind of wondering why you've never sought a career in academia, because, God, you'd be good. <laughs> you can insult us all you want. Go ahead. I'm just putting up my note that says scared for what it is that you're going to tell me. Um, I have not – I mean, I've taught. To be clear, I taught um, – at Georgia, not your Georgia. Um, uh, yeah. I taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. This past uh, year, I co-taught a phenomenal class with Melissa Murray at UVA during their J term. Um, yeah. And I have loved, loved, loved teaching law. Um, I, although I hate creating papers with the heat of a thousand <laughs> fires. Join the club. Suns. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> whew, that is almost disqualifying. Um, I think the short answer is probably just that I've been you know, for most of my career, like being a full-time journalist is yeah. a six-day-a-week job. And yeah. I think it's – and I was raising, you know, uh, two young kids throughout my career. And uh, 
I think it's just, without a doubt, if the question is like, do I regret it? Do I miss it? Do I love teaching? All of those things I regret, I love, I miss. I just think right or wrong, like there was no way I could see having a second job on top of my job. And maybe that'll right. change. Uh, well, we're hiring if you're interested. Um, okay. We, uh, uh, a line that, that, my, that a lot of my friends use and I use all the time, they, they, I would do this job for free, except they, they, what I get paid for is grading. <laughs> Maybe committee assignments, but mostly grading. That's, that's, what, that's the hardest thing we do, and it's, and, it's, and it's terrible. One more question, and then I'll tell you what I was going to tell you. You said I could ask you this. And by the way, I've had other journalists on this podcast, very famous ones, who I know wouldn't answer this question. So I appreciate that you're willing to. You said I could ask you, and we, just, we didn't talk a lot before. This is a general roadmap. But I'm curious who your least and most favorite justices are. I mean, my most favorite justices, you know, I'm a huge fan of Elena Kagan, um, especially okay. after you um, slandered her earlier, <laughs> um, because I want to talk about this um, trick she has that I think is really important. Um, you know, first of all, I do really respect her effort to see merit in all sides. I think that is a, a disappearing art. But I started to notice, and I think I wrote a piece about this in New York Magazine when I tr profiled her early in her career, I love that she writes in the second person. I love <laughs> that she writes, imagine that you are. Think about how you would feel. And to me, it was very, very emblematic of what I, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, ascribed to... Somebody who probably because of gender, probably because um, of having been othered in her lifetime and then uh, being in a position of power, always manages to empathize with someone that isn't her. Right. And I just thought as a rhetorical trick to start an opinion with, imagine you. And to yeah. invite the reader to come in to a kind of mental space that that's not where they began, I think is a freaking act of literary genius. And I mean, she's hilarious <laughs> and she's a deft writer and we can talk about all that. But that little tick to me really signifies something about empathy and compassion and thinking about other people and not yourself. And by the way, I've also written... And I sound like I'm just celebrating the women justices, but I've also written that I think Sonia Sotomayor, um, famously writing in a case about a, a teenage boy who was being questioned uh, without his parents present, um, also wrote so empathetically about what it is to be a teenage boy. And uh, I think that the the what I love is witnessing a justice who, particularly in this day and age where there are no more Thurgood Marshalls, um, right. try to say, look, you know, I went to Harvard or Yale, I clerked <laughs> for, the, you know, the Supreme Court, I've had the same job description as all of my peers, the one superpower I have left is empathy for lives right. lived that are separate from mine, and that to me, increasingly is a thing that I value. So I'm going to name check those two and then say with some reluctance, and I don't like talking about my least favorite justices, but I feel like maybe counter-programming that is just this uh, Justice Alito just relentlessly feeling empathy only with himself and yeah. with people like him. And, you know, you really saw it at the Notre Dame speech. You saw it last year in the Federalist Society speech. Just this deep sense that the only people suffering in America today are people who share his religious views, who share his political views, who share his views on uh, LGBTQ rights or on women's rights, and an almost defiant, not just sort of victimhood, because I know that's the loop we're in, but a defiant sense that nobody else is visible to him and that's okay. So I don't know if that's a comprehensive answer, but to me, more and more and more, I think, having said 
several times that, you know, the one thing I think justices can do is be decent. I think the right. other thing they can do is show us that they're listening and that yeah. they can imagine a life outside of their scope of experience. And so anytime I see a jurist writing from that place, I'm blown away. And every time I see a jurist say, We've got to stop all these COVID orders. We've got to defy all public health officials because those people are just haters and they hate religion. And that's my frame. It's the frame I brought to this. It's the frame I leave with. I just think that that is just a really pernicious path to be on. So I don't know if that's a good answer. but No, that's a beautifully said answer on all counts. Um, to footnote your Alito point, a few years ago when Masterpiece Cake Shop, which was the case involving for those listening, um, you know, uh, a wedding baker who wouldn't make a, a, a cake for a, a same-sex marriage, and that case was in the pipeline coming to the Supreme Court. Alito gave three speeches in four months, two to, one to the Federal Society and two to Catholic groups, saying that religious liberty is on a deep threat in this country. And, and, and he really went on and on about it. For him to say that with that case, talk about the appearance of impropriety, talk about prejudging cases. I mean, he did that while that case was pending. I mean, that's crazy. All right. Um, this has been wonderful, and I want to end it this way. We wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you. Um, I don't mean today. I mean, I wouldn't be having a podcast if it wasn't for you. Um, I wouldn't be writing in places like Slate and other places like that where I've written if it wasn't for you. Um, and I wouldn't have my non-law review career if it wasn't for you. I don't know if you know what I'm going to say now, um, but it's true. So uh, in 2012, around March or I think March of 2012, the Obamacare case was coming uh, in June, and you and I both appeared on my friend the Pete Dominic show, which at the time was on XM Radio, by the way. Pete says hello, and he wants you to do his podcast, and I hope you will. Um, but anyway, we were on that show together, and I just dropped a thing that I'd been thinking about, which was that not I don't want to fight about this today, but that Elena Kagan absolutely had to recuse herself in the Obamacare case because she was the head of the Solicitor General's office when that case was argued in the lower courts. You can't be a judge on a case that you worked on previously. She, she didn't work on it, but her deputy did. Her deputy argued it. That isn't the point. We talked about it. You said I was wrong. I said I was right. It was all friendly. We hung up. And to my great surprise, you wrote me an email and said, why don't you write this up for Slate? And if it's good, I'll, I'll publish it when you, had the, when you did that kind of thing. I did. And you published it. And um, by my standards, it kind of went viral. <laughs> you know, not by celebrity standards, but by law professor standards, it did make a lot of... I called it a liberal's lament, why Justice Kagan has to recuse herself. And in fact, you broke one of your rules, which is you had Ian Milhauser respond to it, and then you let me respond to Ian, which you never do, and, 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 and it was very kind of you. But that whole episode, Dahlia, put me in the world of radio, TV. I've done a lot of and, and, and just trying to talk to non-lawyers. And I learned that I love talking to non-lawyers and, and, and non-law professors. I've been doing it ever since. That does not happen if that slate piece doesn't do what it did. And the fact that you disagreed with me strongly, which you did, and invited me to write it anyway for a publication like Slate, which we all know has a progressive bent, um, was incredibly big of you and incredibly warm of you open-minded of you, and here's the key word, incredibly decent of you, um, and it changed my life. I wanted to tell you that for 10 years, and it's true. So, I'm speechless. I'll I thank you. I, I really do. That makes my day. Well, it's all true. Um, thank you so much for doing this. I wish we had three hours to talk. I know you have another meeting. Um, but thank you for doing this, and I can't wait for people to see this. And I really do appreciate um, a lawyer talking about decency because that doesn't happen anywhere near enough. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me.